message uh, to the church at Pergamum. Once again, the passage begins with a description of Christ, and once again, the description of Christ is given that is appropriate to the situation of the church. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Once again, this pithy description is taken from the vision that is given in chapter 1. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This same description appears elsewhere in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19:15. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty God. Revelation 19:21, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. From the references in Revelation 19, we find that the sharp two-edged sword is more fully described. The sharp two-edged sword is the tongue or words of Christ, for from his mouth comes a sharp sword. The sharp sword will subdue the nations. Verse 15 of chapter 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Thus, Christ will only have to speak to subdue the nations. It's going to be uh, the word, actually, that is going to conquer. Uh, he is going to but speak and uh, all will obey and all will fall before him. It um, reminds us of the passage in the Gospels when they came to arrest Jesus. And uh, he said, uh, it is I. And they all uh, fell down and uh, were prostrate before him, all the soldiers. Uh, it shows the power of Christ's word. His word will be powerful and result in full outward obedience. Revelation 19.15, he will rule them with a rod of iron. There will be this complete outward subjection to the authority of Jesus Christ. I say outward, for inwardly mankind will still be rebelling. There ultimately is going to be a rising up and uh, a coming against the power of Christ, but of course he will ultimately and finally subdue them. His word will reveal his full wrath. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And so the outpouring of his wrath is going to be a result, again, of uh, his word. Christ's spoken word is consistent with the written word of God. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of God is powerful, whether that word is spoken or whether that word is written. For the source of the word is what bears the power, namely Jesus Christ. Uh, of course, we find in the book of John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we find in the book of Genesis that God spoke, and there was creation. Uh, all that had to happen was for God to speak, and each of the, the days of creation brought forth the powerful work of God. And so we are told that that work is by the triune God, 
Uh, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And we find in the book of John again, following that great statement, I am, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on to say, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So it is that spoken word which is from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the very embodiment, embodiment of uh, the power and will of God. For John 1.14 tells us, and the, full, uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace or truth. So his word is powerful. And tonight, the emphasis of that word is that it is a, it's a sword. Uh, it is able to cut, and it can cut two ways. It's a two-edged sword, and we'll look more about that in just a few moments. Number two, Christ's intimate care and concern. Christ knows all about what the church at Pergamum is going through. Christ knows where they live. It says, I know where you dwell. Christ knows all about the things that they are facing, the circumstances they are encountering, the hardships they are enduring, the evil that encompasses them. They live in a place where Satan's power is definitely at work. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It's talking about Satan's rule and, and Satan's power, his authority. In a very unique way, in the city of Pergamum, uh, Satan is rearing his ugly head, and they are experiencing the... Uh, awful results. Three, they live in a place where Satan's influence are keenly felt. For it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Christ's assessment of the church at Pergamum. First, there is a positive Assessment, and then there's a negative assessment. First, positively, Christ praises the church for having continued to identify with Christ even in a difficult place. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet, despite the fact that they are in this hard place where the satanic influence is great, yet you hold fast my name. And so they are praised for uh, withstanding the power and the influence of the evil one. Christ praises the church for having remained faithful to Christ's teaching even in difficult times. And you did not deny my faith. That is the substance of the truth of God. Uh, that embodiment of truth, which in this instance is referred to as the faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Uh, even in the days of his, his martyrdom as Antipas uh, was killed, it tells us, among them. Uh, an aside, but an important aside, uh, the word for uh, witness in uh, the Greek is the word martyros, and it's the word from which we get the, the word martyr. Uh, in latter New Testament days, uh, persecution was so widely experienced that martyrdom was associated with being a witness. If you were going to be a witness, you were going to be a martyr. And so that has come down to us today 
in this term, as I say, martyr, but martyr simply means a witness, a witness for the cause of Christ. And here the church is praised because in this time of hardship and experience, um, they are going to experience uh, and have experienced this persecution even to death, but they remain faithful. Of course, we read in the Beatitudes, blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Persecution is not unique to any particular uh, period of time, but uh, God's people have been called uh, to be faithful to him even unto death and so they are praised. Three, Christ praises those who remain faithful to him even in difficult times and places. For he refers to Antipasus as his faithful witness. So application. A. Christ is well aware of the full extent of the circumstances of our lives. Nothing goes unnoticed. Uh, nothing is beyond his control. Uh, nothing is outside of his sight or his understanding. Secondly, and I think this is important for us to understand these next few points, Christ acknowledges that there are some places where it is more difficult to live for Christ than other places. Uh, Pergamum uh, for, was uh, viewed as the uh, throne place of, of Satan. Uh, he was particularly active. And there are places around this world where certainly uh, satanic influences are more demonstrable than other places. Uh, we are uh, blessed to live in America where uh, the kinds of satanic influences that are uh, seen in third world countries is not as prevalent uh, here. That doesn't mean it won't always be, uh, but uh, there are places where uh, satanic influence uh, runs uh, virtually rampant. Next, Christ acknowledges that there are some times when it is more difficult to live for Christ than at other times. He talks about the days of Antipas. Uh, there are times in which, uh, as I say, it is more difficult to live for, for Christ. D, there are places around the globe where satanic activity and influence is far greater than other places. There are times in the history of our own nation when it was easier to live for Christ than during other times in our nation. There were times in which uh, Christianity uh, was looked upon very favorably. Uh, we think about the, the founding of our country, certainly in the, the north, uh, when you have the pilgrim influence and uh, the people that came uh, as a matter of faith and, uh, and uh, fleeing persecution. Things were different in the south uh, with uh, Jamestown and that settlement uh, by prisoners, etc. But in the north, there was this strong religious influence. And in the early days of our, of our nation, Christianity was looked upon very favorably. I've been saying often that we live in a post-Christian era. And all that simply means is that we live in a, a post a time when Christianity is fa falling out of vogue, where it doesn't enjoy the same kind of privileged, uh, positive view that it once had. And with that, it's helpful for us to understand that we may not have it as easy in the days to come as we have now. Uh, things might get harder for us, and we need to prepare. But uh, Christ is well aware and praises those that are faithful to, to Christ, even in difficult times. You just wonder what's going to happen uh, with the uh, 
way in which uh, people are, I think, going to start falling by the wayside when uh, living for Christ becomes uh, much more difficult, when it is going to require uh, a measure of sacrifice that it doesn't require today. Christ's negative assessment of the church. There were some who were teaching out of the wrong motivation. So this, this church has a, a mixed body. There were, there were those that were being very faithful. There were those that weren't. And, of course, he's able to distinguish between the two. There were some who were teaching out of the wrong motivation. Revelation 2.14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Balaam, of course, if you uh, know the Old Testament, Balaam was uh, the prophet that was hired uh, to curse the children of Israel. And uh, 2 Peter tells us more about Balaam uh, and uh, false prophets. It says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Uh, that is Balaam's uh, anathema in the Old Testament. It was his motivation. Uh, he went and uh, did the bidding of the king uh, as a result of the gifts that the king gave to him. The motivation was greed, according to the scriptures. And these people that are following the way of Balaam are then thus people that are motivated by, by greed. And that's pretty uh, central uh, to this text. Their false teaching resulted in religious and moral impurity. <clears throat> but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Revelation 2.15. So also you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. Uh, as mentioned before, uh, we don't really know a great deal. In fact, we don't know anything about uh, the Nicolaitans uh, with uh, surety. But obviously uh, they are condemned. But here are these people following the way of Balaam who, uh, rather than sacrificing, are uh, in... Uh, self-preservation and greed, uh, altering the word of God. So Christ warns the church, if these individuals do not repent of their false teaching and sinful practices, his word will be to them destruction, not a comfort. Revelation 2.16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Second Peter 2.15 and 16 says, concerning Balaam, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So here, the word of God comes in a powerful way through the agency of a donkey. If you know the story, uh, Balaam is uh, on his way to curse the children of Israel. He's traveling by donkey, coming uh, between uh, two uh, 
cliffs and gets to a place where the road narrows uh, mightily and the donkey sees an angel in the way that uh, Balaam cannot see and the donkey pushes to the side and crushes the leg of Balaam and he gets upset at the donkey and then pushes on the other side and crushes the other leg of Balaam and Balaam gets upset and is about ready to beat his donkey and all of a sudden the donkey speaks and rebukes Balaam for going to curse the children of Israel. Here, the word of God is spoken not by a donkey, but here the word of God comes to them in a powerful way, saying to them, you need to repent. You need to repent. The emphasis is on the word of God. It is powerful in whatever form it comes. And it should be heeded. It should be obeyed. So the church is to listen to his word and not listen to the word of false teachers. He has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Christ will provide for those who remain faithful to him. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, as you uh, read that phrase, I will give to some the hidden manna, there is reason for that uh, metaphor uh, that is given in the scriptures. Uh, the significance of the reference to manna. The illusion is the Old Testament where God provided for Israel in the wilderness, a place that was hard and difficult, not unlike the place where Satan dwells. Okay? So they were brought to a hard and difficult place just as Pergamum was a hard and difficult place. And they murmured and they complained. But God was able to provide for them even in a wilderness, even in a barren land, even in a hard and difficult place, God provided for the children of Israel by providing them manna from heaven, which was a, 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 a coriander seed that, that grew and was available for them to eat. It came up each morning, uh, left with the, the sunrise and the uh, drying up of the dew. It would spoil, and each day it reappeared. And so um, God provided for the children of Israel, even in the wilderness. Uh, B, he provided for the nation as opposed to relying on food that is sacrificed to idols and those who preach the word of God for personal gain. The idea here is that uh, we don't need to make compromise, even in hard and difficult times. But God is able to provide. He's able to give us this hidden manna. He's able to see us through. He's able to give us what we need of. We don't have to compromise. We don't have to uh, change our values. We don't have to be looking for other food than the food in which God provides us. The significance of the hidden manna. So that the children of Israel would not forget the faithfulness of God's provision, a pot of manna was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 16 and following. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. Manna is a Hebrew word. It simply means what is it? What is it? They looked at this and they said, what's this? And uh, that's what they called it. What's this? Manna means what's this? And it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. So once again, his word. This is what the Lord commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. So originally this, this manna that normally would have spoiled in a day is wonderfully preserved by the power of God and doesn't spoil and is placed in a pot and it's placed before uh, what is referred to here is the uh, Ark of Testimony, which is the Ark of the Covenant. But eventually, the, the manna was not uh, any longer placed in front of the Ark of the Covenant, but actually was placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, originally, the Ark of the Covenant contained only the Ten Commandments. Uh, but, uh, and that's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant, the covenant being the Ten Commandments. Uh, but as time went on, uh, added to the Ark of the Covenant was uh, the uh, manna, this pot of manna that was preserved, and Aaron's rod that budded. Uh, so those three elements eventually became uh, contained within the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in Hebrews, it tells us more. Behind the second curtain, this is viewing the uh, tabernacle and uh, later the temple. And if you can picture, you know, your Old Testament Bible lesson on the tabernacle, if you remember, there are two places in the tabernacle. There is the holy place, and there is the most holy place. The most holy place was entered only once a year on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would enter uh, with blood and place it on the top of the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the people. Uh, the only article of furniture in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. So Hebrews 9.3, behind the second curtain, this most holy place, was a section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Thus, those who remain faithful to God will be sustained by him in the most difficult of circumstances by a miraculous provision of his grace. You will eat my hidden manna. You will be sustained by me. I will provide for you in ways in which it is, imagine, it is unimaginable. I think that's, that's really helpful for us to, to contemplate uh, when we think about, about persecution, when we think about hardship, and when we think about difficulty, uh, I think the very uh, first inclination is to be scared, frightened. The second is to ask the question, uh, am I going to be able to go through that? Am, am I going to be able to remain faithful to God? Am, am I going to be able, when called upon, uh, to stand up with that kind of, of courage? Well, it's important to understand that we are not just at that moment going to become super Christians and all of a sudden we have this incredible uh, desire to honor and glorify God more than what we have now, except that his spirit enables. His spirit gives grace. His spirit produces within us, in our own barren hearts, this ability to stand for 
Christ. <coughs> what could be a very depressing book, in my estimation, is a wonderful book, uh, and that is Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, for it gives account after account after account of the way in which martyrs have died through the centuries. How people have stood firm in their, their faith for the Lord Jesus Christ. How people were able to go to the flames singing hymns and dying in those flames, praising and honoring and glorifying God. We shouldn't exalt those individuals. We should exalt their God. The God who gives that kind of grace. That God who gives that kind of, of ability. That hidden manna of which we can't really speak that is unknowable for us is going to be there. And that's what we're called to trust in. We are to trust in the power and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the time comes, he will not fail us. He will help us. He will stand by us. He knows our weakness. It's not our strength. It's his. And that's the word of comfort. That he will give us this hidden manna that bears witness to his power to provide. D, Christ will provide for those who remain faithful to him a future indescribable glorious existence. If you have an ear to hear, let him what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The Old Testament allusions in our text are numerous. Uh, one of the important elements in understanding the book of Revelation is identifying the myriad Old Testament allusions that are contained in, in the book of Revelation. Uh, you can't understand the book of Revelation without understanding the Old Testament. Uh, it's really foundational to, to the book of uh, the Revelation, for it draws so heavily upon the Old Testament truths, and I have said in another Sunday school class where I worked through um, looking at uh, allusions from the book of Exodus that are found uh, in the book of Revelation, and I did a whole quarter uh, just about on looking at the similarities between Exodus and Revelation. Well, uh, here there are uh, allusions to the book of Isaiah. A new name in the scriptures speaks of a new and different existence. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Uh, it is commonplace in the scriptures that uh, God brings about such a wonderful change in the life of individuals that uh, they're, they're known by a new name, such as a Saul becomes a Paul in the New Testament. Such a, such a difference. It's another metaphorical way to talk about being born again or being a new creation. Such a change that takes place that they're worthy of a new name. Here is this, this transformation 
that God is going to bring about in the lives of individuals, that they are worthy of a new name. Uh, Isaiah 62.2 sheds some very helpful light on our text. For it says, The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. So this, this new name is going to be a result of their, their righteousness and their glory. So their steadfastness is going to be accounted by, by others. People are going to be, be remarking, okay? When Pergamum, they stand fast for the things of God, it's going to be spoken about. People are going to be amazed at the faithfulness of God's people. Notice how the elements of our passage come together in this verse. Righteousness equals a white stone. The nations shall see your righteousness. Revelation 2.17. To the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone. All right, This, this white uh, refers to the righteousness. The stone is the, the rock-solid stand which they have. It says a new name corresponds to the new name in our text. Uh, Isaiah 62.2, and you shall be called by a new name. Revelation 2.17, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You can't explain it, you can't describe it, but the one who experiences it alone can fully explain it. And the mouth of the Lord corresponds to the one who has a sharp two-edged sword in our text. The nations shall see your, your righteousness, all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. This one who speaks, this one who has a two-edged sword. You see that, that sword can conquer and that sword can defend. That sword can subdue all the enemies and that sword can be our defense against our enemies so that we can be victorious. And by his mouth, by his word, by his promises, by this unexplainable grace and power of God, we stand, even in the midst of hardship even in places where satanic influence runs wild. We can still stand. Number two, we have another allusion to a name in the book of Revelation that is re revealed to our text. The one who conquers, Revelation 3.12. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. Now, this new name... has significance for being a part of God's uh, purpose and realization and relationship with him. So conclusion, Christ's word is powerful. It's like a two-edged sword. It is two-edged for it can work for us or against us. His word can subdue our enemies. His word can provide comfort, help, and blessing to those who trust in him. You know, as we, we think about God's word, it is both that. It is, it is uh, the source of 
salvation, for by faith comes hearing, and hearing by the word of God, and the word of God is also the source of condemnation, for people will be judged out of the word and what they have heard and what they have rejected. So that word works for us and works against us. There are times and places where it is extremely difficult to live for the Lord. God is full aware of those, those difficulties. Uh, tonight, as you go to bed, and maybe it's your habit to pray before you go to bed, uh, just think about where we live and think about how blessed we are and how there are places around the world tonight where people are in fear that someone is going to knock on their door and take them away. That in their naming the name of Christ, that they are putting their life at risk. In many respects, we have it easy. Many places around it's so much tougher. Number two, there is a hidden manna of his provision for all those who trust in him. When the time comes that we need that grace, we will be given that grace. Okay? All you have to do is think of a Peter. When Peter was told that he was going to deny the Lord, you know the story. He said, not me. He said, I'm willing to die for you. The response of Jesus, and uh, you probably know it. Say, say it with me. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. When Peter said that, Jesus acknowledged, Peter, that's what's in your heart. What you are saying is how you feel but you don't realize your weakness. You don't realize your inability to carry that out. You don't understand how fearful you really are. And then you know the story of how uh, Peter is warming his hands and a maiden, a maid comes and says, aren't you one of them? Weren't you with Jesus? And he actually curses he actually takes God's name in vain to demonstrate that he is not a follower of Jesus Christ. He denies Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. For in his own strength, he failed. But that same Peter grows to be strong and mighty and actually is crucified for his faith. And he requests that he could be crucified upside down because he is not worthy to be killed in the same way that his Lord was killed. What was the difference in Peter? The grace of God. The power that God gives. That Simon becomes a Peter, a rock. Number three, 
We do not need to eat the food of idols. We don't have to compromise our faith. We don't have to give in to the powers that are around us in order to uh, be sustained. We are to live righteous and holy lives following the instruction of God's word and not the words of false teachers. To those who do not submit to Christ, his word will be their destruction. To those who submit to Christ, his word is their protection and comfort. God's word, in whatever form it comes, his spoken word, his written word, is powerful. It can subdue and it can sustain. May we trust in God's word fully for the sustaining grace and the power to conquer to his honor and to his glory. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray. Uh, we think of the places around this world where satanic influences is so rampant and so strong. Uh, Lord, uh, certainly the evil one is at work in our, our land. We, we don't uh, dismiss that. Uh, we know that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But there is a, a sense in which in some places uh, that fer ferocity is experienced in a much greater way than, than here. But Lord, we still stand in need of you. And Lord, guard us because we might think that we can stand on our own because things are not all that difficult. But Lord, it didn't take the army. It only took a maid to bring fear into the heart of Peter. And Lord, may it simply be that we struggle to identify with you, not because we fear for our life, but we fear for our reputation. We're afraid of being made fun of. We're afraid of not fitting in. We're afraid of being an oddball. Oh, Lord, help us not to rely on our strength, not to rely upon our resolutions, not to rely upon our commitment, but, Lord, learn to rely upon you. Lord, help us to stand and stand firm. And we thank you for the promise of the word of God ahead of time that if we were to be in a place where we were called upon to give our life, that we can know that you will sustain us. You will give us a hidden manna, something that we can't describe, we haven't experienced, but yet is real and is powerful. And we will bring glory to you for it will not be us, it will be you. So Lord, comfort us tonight from your word. Give us the strength to believe and not to fear, knowing that you will be with us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.